0: Yes, sir?
1: Don't
0: let this be well, I. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Bishop. I confess I'm a little nervous about it. I, I had kind of gotten used to the
2: us four no more in that first steps room. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we'll give a couple more minutes and then we'll take prayer requests and start with prayer. The Rawls, do you know anything about recording? Because normally I just punch the button right next to me. Okay. Oh, so everything is now on record. Okay, good deal. No problem. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you all for being here. I have not necessarily been introducing myself to all of y'all, so I am Delene Rawls, and this is session six of a study of the book on prayer. We combined the session that has been in here um, for the ladies because of some unforeseen things, so um, thank you all for... Relocating from first steps into this room or sticking with us in here, um, the things that we've been talking about in our first five sessions are not necessarily required for tonight to work for you because um, we're using this book and each of our devotions kind of stands alone. And so it's possible for us to um, continue with. This with tonight's session, and and anybody who's in here hopefully won't feel like um, they're lost or anything like that. But before we get started, we definitely need to pray together. Um, I know that we need to be praying for the family of Mike Griffin, Brother Philip Griffin's father passed away Monday evening, and uh, tonight is their visitation, and tomorrow morning is the service for uh, Brother Mike. So let's just Hold up Brother Phillips, Sister Mandy, Seamus, and Ivy, and Brother Phillips' mom. I think her name is Deborah Griffin. Uh, So let's hold them up. What other needs do we need to take before the Lord tonight? Sister Kathy. Oh, goodness. Yes, ma'am. All right. We'll be praying for that. Anything else specific? In Jesus' name, yes, yes. Job interview for Brother Brandon. Lord's will to be done. Yes, Sister Sarah. Okay, let's pray for Sister Layla Hunter. Absolutely. Well, I covet your prayers as the person with the microphone this evening, but most of all I just want God to anoint all of our minds and hearts and open our ears tonight so that we can learn together and um, continue to, to focus on him the way that his word is teaching us to do. Lord,
2: I thank you for the opportunity to be together, to join into this refuge and this sanctuary. This is a place of prayer. This is a house of prayer. This is a place dedicated to seeking your face, to knowing you on a personal level. And I thank you, Jesus, for everyone that's here tonight, here to join together. Lord, you've heard these needs brought before you. God, I know that the Griffins have been laid at your feet, and we're just going to keep asking you to hold them in the palm of your hand and comfort them with a peace that goes beyond their understanding. Thank you, Jesus, for a touch for Sister Kathy Coleman. As she prepares for surgery, Lord, you are able. We ask you to guide the medical staff and just intervene in that situation, and we trust that your perfect will will be done for her healing and recovery. Thank you, Jesus, for a touch for Layla Hunter. Lord, you see every physical need that she has, and you are the great physician. You are the Provider for her. I thank you for the faith of her parents and I thank you, Lord, because she has been placed in your hands and you are using her on this kingdom. And we just trust you to continue to heal her body. Thank you, Lord, for answers for Brother Brandon. Your will be done. You are the provider, God, and you use earthly ways to provide, but we trust you in everything. I thank you for direction for him. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we praise you and trust you.
0: Okay, so for those who have not been a part of this session, the book on prayer, written by Brother Ken Gurley, um, he is an apostolic minister in the southern part of our state, and um, the book is designed in such a way that there are informational sections, and then there are seven—excuse uh, me, twenty-one daily devotions on prayer. Um, so, in trying to smush all of that into six weeks. It's been a little bit fascinating, and um, the the way that the materials have kind of come together, it's very definitely my perspective on these devotions. And I encourage everybody who has a chance to get their own copy of the book and experience the devotions for yourselves, because um, every time I read it, I get something else out of it. And so I uh, hope that that would be the case. Um, the information on how to get the book is on the bottom of the handout, too. By the way, you can get it from Amazon.com. So tonight, we're going to conclude with three of the chapters on The Seventh and Forgotten Weapon, Changing the Spiritual Climate, and the recentered Life. And I'll just go ahead and tell you that I was reading back over my notes, and I found two typos, and I don't like it when I... Mistype things, and so I apologize. Um, If you find them, you can tell me later, and maybe there'll be a prize involved. I don't know. We'll see.
2: (laughs) I'm not going to point them out, because if you don't see them, then maybe it doesn't matter. But I saw them, and I was a little bit frustrated
0: with it. But anyway, um, we're not going to discuss those last three devotions in the order that they are in the book, but I just put the numbers so that you would know. We're going to mix it up just a little bit, because... As I was preparing, I had my notes lined out and then we had two services and, and the Lord just kind of changed my mind and he just dealt with me about some things and um, changed my focus and order just a little bit. So um, again, this is how I have perceived this book and these, these, these final devotions. And I'm just going to read exactly how our handout starts because this is a direct quote from the book. On page 279, Brother Gurley writes, One thing. Is there one thing you could do to change everything? One thing that could cause you to glow like a light in the darkness. Open a clear path before you. Bring full life In the emptiest of places. Make your life bloom like a rose. Take old rubble and transform it into foundations for many generations. Repair all that is damaged and cause you to ride high and soar above adversity. For these benefits and more, you would need to do the one thing described in Isaiah 58. Once you are engaged in this spiritual practice, your entire spiritual climate will radically change. Fair warning, you're not going to like this. Caution, your flesh is really going to hate this. Buckle up. This is going to be a rough ride. Is anybody guessing what we're talking about yet? Yeah. The one practice that can radically change the spiritual climate Isaiah 58 and 6 is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. So, in our final session on prayers continuance, we change the spiritual climate with fasting. Fasting. The one thing that Brother Gurley says could change everything. That really hit me hard. Fasting is that act of self denial. And when it's combined with prayer, it will be a change agent. I don't like to deny myself. Anybody get up in the morning and say, Ooh, today is the day that I look forward to saying no to everything my flesh wants. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not alone. Because I mean, from before my feet hit the floor, my flesh is going coffee. (laughs) Something sweet. I mean, I don't even have to even be awake all the way, and, and I'm wanting all of those things that my body thinks it's got to have to get through the day, right? And then when somebody comes in my office and tells me about that thing that they forgot was due that they're not ready for, I'm like, where's the chocolate? You better bring me some chips if you bring me bad news. <clears throat> because my flesh reacts to things. My emotions cause my body to... Crave certain things that I don't want to deny, and I and I, you know, I want to do what I want to do, and self denial is one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing. And we've talked about this in different ways, those of us who've, you know, been a part of the the prayer session, because we've talked about how prayer meant rebuilding the altar and sacrifice is what happens at the altar, so, sacrificing self. Well, fasting is that sacrifice of self also. Fasting means to refrain from. Fasting means to refrain from. So I am certainly not an expert on fasting. I have had lessons taught to me, but uh, I'm preaching to myself and I'm learning about it through this lesson to to try to be better at it myself, too. So I am not sure if before this particular devotion, I had had a chance to really study what Isaiah 58 and 6 was telling us. And it's telling us why we fast. So we fast for these reasons, to loose the bonds of wickedness. And that's to make sure that we demonstrate to ourselves and to God that we are not going to be in bondage to anything. We're not going to be in bondage to that craving for sugar or salt or caffeine or whatever. Um, We're not going to be in bondage to the habits that keep us from focusing on God. Or we fast to loose others from the bonds of wickedness or oppression. And then verse 6 goes on to say, To undo heavy burdens. Are there any people in here who own camels? No? Okay, no camel owners. Anybody ever seen a camel being used as a pack animal? Okay. I didn't know this, or if, if, if I was supposed to know it, it just didn't stick with me. But, you know, camel is pretty tall, and so when you think about a camel being used to transport carry baggage, whatever, burdens, whatever. It never occurred to me that for me to be able to load and unload a camel, I would need a stepladder. Okay, well, a stepladder is kind of hard to pack around too if you're in the desert. So camels would have to be taught to kneel for the burden to be loaded and unloaded. So just like that camel has to kneel to get rid of its burden then we have to kneel and humble ourselves so that we can be loosed from heavy burdens, so that those burdens can be taken off of us. God can lift them off of us when we are humbled. And then verse 6 goes on to say, This is the fast I have chosen to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Now, some of that seems repetitive, didn't we just say, loose the bond of wickedness, let the oppressed go free? Same thing, loose the bonds of wickedness. But it's to emphasize how powerful the fast that God chooses for us can be in our lives. It's, it's to get freedom from all those things because we are not a slave to the things that we are denying. When we surrender and say, Lord, with your strength, I will deny myself, then that fast is what... Gets us free. How we fast. Throughout the Bible, there's a wide variety of ways that show up in either examples from different men and women of God. Or even perhaps something akin to instruction, the way it's written out. So the three ways that Brother Gurley sort of pulls out and focuses on for us to think about include supernatural fasting, absolute fasting, and partial fasting. Mm -hmm. There are three men in Scripture who fasted for 40 days and nights. Who can name them? Really? Okay, don't talk. Who else? I heard other people saying it. Moses, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Yes. So when Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, it was when he was on the mount. He, did, he kissed him at the back. He, no. mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was, he, he was with God on the mount receiving the Ten Commandments. And for 40 days and nights, it says, Moses was with God and did not even need food or water in that time frame because of God's presence being so powerful and sustaining him. And plus, he was focused, working really hard, getting the Ten Commandments recorded, probably. You know, I can only imagine what that would have been like. Just like, oh, spell that again, God? Let me make sure I chip that out of the stone the right way.
2: Not trying to be make light of the Ten Commandments, but just think about what it would
0: have been to be a man. <laughs> a human in that presence and having that task. So I don't know if food and drink would have really been something I was worried about either. But yes, it happened twice because the first time the Ten Commandments were delivered and he came down the mountain and in his anger, he threw them down. When he went back, he fasted again 40 days and nights. So that supernatural fast sustained by God's presence alone. Elijah, now we've spent a good bit of time in our fall breakouts, talking about Elijah and how he demonstrated some very powerful ways to pray. But after Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he had to kind of flee for his life. And in the process of running from King Ahab and Jezebel, he ended up having an interaction with an angel And the angel gave him food, and the food sustained him for 40 days and nights. So that supernatural fast, Moses in the presence of God, Elijah getting a snack from an angel and and a nap. You know, the angel did say take a nap. And then the angel woke him up and said, hey, eat again, because you're fixing to have to go. And when it said on that food, he was sustained for 40 days and nights. And then... Jesus fasting, one of the things that really hit me, Jesus was sent into the desert to be tempted of Satan. That's how it reads. And, uh, I, I lost my scripture, but I, I think it was Matthew 4 and 2. Um, he was sent there to be tempted, and his fast... You know, in my mind, I was like, well, yeah, of course that was supernatural fasting. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. But when Jesus was fasting, he was flesh. Okay? So it, it just hit me to make that distinction. Jesus was fasting as a man, not as God, because God wouldn't have been hungry. But it says that when Jesus fasted, he was hungry after 40 days and nights. And that temptation that the devil tried to hand him was, oh, don't you want some bread? Here's some rocks. You, you could turn stones into bread. So he was feeling what we feel in his flesh on that 40-day and night fast. But again, the supernatural nature of who he was, God, in the flesh, sustained him through that temptation. Multiple temptations, as a matter of fact. So I know one person that I can say I've ever heard talk about going on an extended fast. And I believe that she did fast for multiple weeks. I don't know if it was 40 days, but I know it was at least a month. But she did not go without food and water. She abstained from everything but clear broth for an extended period of time. It was like three or four weeks. Um, that's only one person that I can ever remember talking about fasting that way. And she told, she told about that as a testimony of how God opened doors in her ministry and delivered her from, from things and, and just changed the course of everything that she was doing for the kingdom of God. But she started that fast because God, she had been praying and saying, Oh Lord, I don't understand why I'm blocked. Why I keep praying about this and it doesn't happen. And, and when, when will this ever change? And while she was praying, she got hungry. And so she went to get something. And as she reached for the food, God spoke to her and said, if you will do this, I will open those doors. And so that lengthy fast for her was inspired by that supernatural voice that said, if you really mean what you say, and this is what you're asking for, deny yourself and watch what I will do. And, I mean, today her testimony is still just magnificent, and God has expanded her territory through her ministry as a result of that moment in time. And I've always hung on to that. So absolute fasting. There are examples in the Bible of short periods... Of, of men and women of God going short periods with no food or water. And so it does record where Paul, Ezra, and Esther experience that. But what do we know about the human body going without food? We can go several days without food, but we can't go, but maybe two days without water, before we have the kinds of intense health consequences. So absolute fasting. There aren't very many examples of that in the Bible because it is a rarity. And it would still have to be sustained by God in in most situations. But partial fasting is possibly one of the most common things that we will hear about, that we will be encouraged to practice, that we will be exhorted to seek out God's strength so that we can deny ourselves and that's to have no food but drink water for a specific period of time. And there are other variations of partial fasting. A lot of folks will point to Daniel's experience when he was in captivity. And I've even heard it called the Daniel Fast, where you choose to deny certain categories of foods or or, or types of foods for a period of time, because that is what Daniel did when that particular time that he was seeking for God's intervention when he was in captivity. But partial fasting is one that I know a lot of people make a regular practice of. And it's that regular reminder for all of those folks that I can think of that I can't get caught up in what I want. I've got to have this regular time that I'm reminded I can't do it without God. And if I don't set a time, then I will let myself get out of control. I will let my desires rule what I do instead of surrendering and submitting and denying myself so that God's desires can rule. Choose to fast. In Isaiah 58 and 6, it starts, is not this the fast I have chosen for you? God has chosen a fast for us. To break the bonds and bring freedom. When we fast and pray, heaven and earth are moved. When we fast and pray, heaven and earth are moved. Fasting is the God-ordained and time-worn means to change the spiritual climate. We talk about rainstorms as the heavens opening up sometimes, you know, like the heavens just opened up and all that water dumped out. So that's a part of our climate. Let's change our spiritual climate by opening up heaven and moving earth, having earthquakes shake our spiritual world, change our spiritual climate. God has chosen a fast. God has a fast chosen for you. So choose his fast. Anybody have a, a question or any comments about fasting? Anything that they... Said, a men, <laughs> Is that the one that, that, that never got rewritten when Moses broke the tablets the first time? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I can understand that one. I can understand that one. For me, Bishop, I can do without chocolate. It's chips, it's chips and salsa. Oh, glory.
2: <laughs> I, I, I want the salty stuff. <laughs> Is that the chocolate? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I got you. <laughs> we keep
0: a candy bowl at work, and we, we do. We call it stress chocolate. Because it's like, you can tell too, when, when folks are having a, a bad day, that there's just a path beaten by that candy bowl. Um, I actually split it up earlier this week and I left some candy out where um, more people can get to it. And then I put some special candy on my desk in a different bowl. Cause I said, once the word gets out, people gonna have to come in and look me in the eye before they get a piece of this candy and then they have a chance to tell me what is stressing them out, and we can commiserate together because this time of year gets a little crazy in the finance division. So, yes, sir, it's self-denial. And I literally, in about another week, I'm going to have to take that candy bowl and put it outside my office because if I don't, I'll keep eating out of it when I shouldn't. So, yeah. Yes, sir. The body can't heal until
1: we and yes,
0: sir. Well, okay, then. That's a decent argument. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, and I have read um, in multiple, not necessarily that source. That's a, a new piece of information for me. Thank you. But I have read that there are scientifically documented health benefits to fasting. So we're talking about the spiritual climate, but there's things that the physical body can benefit from you fasting. On that, you can't help but become more
1: Christ-minded, spiritually-minded when you're denying to yourself. Mm-hmm. hmm Yes, sir. The teachers should fast, complete fast, water only
0: 24 hours a week. Yes, sir. The second, and then every quarter,
1: you need to fast a three-day water only fast. And once a year, you need to go on a seven-day.
0: A seven-day, Okay. Wow! Wow! That I mean, yeah, sounds like it. (laughs) Sounds like it. (laughs) Right, right. The Lord said, "No, we done." That is that is excellent evidence of the the way that God's word can be verified by science. It's not a contradiction. Science can verify what God's truth is, and I'm, I'm thankful for those kinds of examples. Yes, sir. Um, e- excellent, excellent. Well, I, I do want to be sure that we have time to continue on with page 3. Um, we've been leading up to this, Brother Trevor. Prayer's continuance is the seventh weapon in the armor of God Ephesians 6 11 through 17 Describes the armor of God And some of you already know How to fill in these blanks The belt of Truth The breastplate of Righteousness Shoes of the Gospel of peace Shoes of the gospel of peace. Shield of faith. Helmet of salvation. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But in Ephesians 6 and 18, Paul describes what Brother Gurley calls a forgotten Weapon also so who's got my number one? Ephesians 6:18 says praying always in supplication and in the spirit. So the belt of truth is described in nine words the breastplate of righteousness in seven words, the shoes of the gospel, 12 words, the shield of faith, 21 words, the helmet of salvation, six words, and the sword of the Spirit, 12 words. But then when he goes on to 6 and 18, 21 words used to describe the seventh and forgotten weapon. Praying in the Spirit. That's what he was admonishing in those 21 words, to pray in the Spirit. As oil to a shield, so is the Holy Spirit to faith. Praying in the Spirit anoints our faith. The Spirit elevates the work of faith. As oil to a shield. What does that mean? What makes, a, what makes a shield brittle if it's not oiled? I don't understand. He heard it preached once. That's good. It stuck with him. All right. Well, I am actually referencing my husband the gunsmith because I didn't think he'd be in the room with me, but he will tell you that no matter how expensive or sophisticated the firearm is, you cannot rely on it to do its job if it isn't cleaned and oiled doesn't matter the mechanism, at some point not taking care of it, not oiling it, will cause it to not do its job right. Oil on the shield or sword of the warrior kept them in prime operating function because shields were made sometimes of very heavy leather or metal. And in either case, oil kept it doing its job. If it was very heavy leather and it wasn't oiled, it got brittle. And then an arrow could just split it right in two. As a matter of fact, someone in the Bible died because an arrow pierced their shield. And I never understood that until I read this that it was probably made of leather. Oh, well, that explains it. Because I was like, how does an arrow go through a metal shield? But even a metal shield needed oil to keep it from rusting, to keep it from corroding, to keep it ready to do its job. It prevented the compromise And it made it ready for battle. It offered protection and defense. Oil to the warrior was more than just a protection for a shield or, you know, um, a protection for a sword in some instances. It had many purposes. It would burn for them to have light, it would protect and soften. And make things waterproof against the elements. It wasn't just their shield. It could have been all parts of their armor. All parts of the gear that they had to wear to go into battle would have to be oiled to protect. And and keep it ready against the elements. And oil has a lot of meaning in different examples in the Old Testament. It was used in anointing rituals for prophets. For priests and for, what do you think? Prophets, priests, and kings. If someone was about to have authority conferred upon them, they were anointed with oil. It was a way of showing approval. This is the chosen one. This is the one that will have the oil dripping down their face and off their beard. So those Old Testament examples of oil, whether it was for a warrior, whether it was for a lamp, whether it was for part of the tabernacle, or whether it was just for practical use, have some mirrored examples in some ways in the new testament but it goes to the new level because jesus is called the anointed one and hebrew names for him messiah machiach and christ christos both mean anointed so remember anointing used oil jesus was the anointed one so oil and Jesus start to have an association. So we've got an Old Testament example, Isaiah 61 and 1. The Spirit of the
2: Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good times and to me. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives,
0: and the opening of the prison to the unwell. mm the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do all of these things, to preach, to open up the prisons. So spirit and oil in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, 1 John 2, 20 and 27. That anointing teaches you. That anointing is an unction. It, it flows. And so, again, that a likeness between anointing and oil with the Holy Ghost. Because the unction of the Holy Ghost is that anointing that teaches you. The Spirit has anointed me and has equipped me to do these things. So, in Isaiah, the Holy Ghost was not the Spirit that... Was necessarily being referenced because Isaiah was speaking in terms of God's Spirit, but it was still anointing and oil. And in the New Testament, the anointing and the Holy Ghost are in that same passage in 1 John. And so we do sing about the oil of the Holy Ghost. We hear it preached, we hear it taught, we often hear about the metaphors of the oil being like a reference to the Holy Ghost. I don't know if you've ever seen the Sunday School example of colored water, like you can have red water in a container, and then when you pour the oil of the Holy Ghost into it, it doesn't mix, it stays separate, and it, and it causes things to be distinct as they should be. Oil and water don't mix. So the the oil of the Holy Ghost covers things. It's hard to get it off sometimes. It's hard to scrub off something that's oily. But that's because if it's applied the right way and it does its job, then it covers everything. So if we want the anointing of the Holy Ghost to work in our lives, we take that shield of faith from Ephesians 6 and saturate it with the oil of the Spirit. Okay, so this, this, one, this chapter was a deep one for me, and I pray that I'm not messing it up by trying to condense it and, and summarize it a little bit. But we've got all of these parts of the armor of God, the shield of faith being one of them. But when we pray in the Spirit, when we have the anointing of the Holy Ghost, and we pray in the Spirit as a result then that anoints our faith and makes our faith work better. It elevates the work of our faith. So that's why Brother Gurley mentions that praying in the spirit is that, that oil of the spirit might be that seventh weapon, not, not listed out in Ephesians until 6 and 18. Praying in the spirit is what activates the rest of that armor. When we talked about pure prayers last week, we talked about ways that we should make our time talking to God as humans. You know, we're, we're coming to God and we're trying to pray purely. We're trying to loose ourselves from distractions. We're trying to be as free from contamination as we can. So that's why we talked about praying genuinely, praying in secret, praying patiently, praying in His will, But what Brother Trevor brought up last week that I was like, okay, okay, but that's next week's lesson. He said, but the purest prayer is when you pray in the Spirit. Okay, and he's right because that is truly when we get out of the way entirely, when there's nothing human contaminating our prayer because praying in the Spirit is God praying through us. It's the Holy Ghost praying for us. So that is the purest form of prayer. But as a human, I want to try to purify my prayers, my human prayers, until I can get to the point that God prays through me. And that's praying in the Spirit. And so is it something that just happens? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. We have a fill in the blank. Praying in the Spirit is when God is praying through us because we don't have a human understanding of what is being said. We are praying in tongues when we pray in the Spirit. We are praying in tongues. Sir? Pure oil. oil. That's right. Yes, sir.
1: Sir. The baptism of the Holy Spirit in prayer uh, takes us to that place of purity. See?
0: I love it. I so love there, that.
1: Uh, but the oil had to be perfect. Wow. Every impurity squeezed away from it, annihilated, done away with. It. So, when that oil was taken, it would be good for pouring over the head and mm. down the beard.
0: Thank you, Jesus. So I want to be pressed
2: like those olives. I want all the contaminants removed from me so that when the Holy Ghost flows through me, it is the purest possible oil and doesn't get hindered by anything.
0: In 1 Corinthians 14 and 2, Mm. In the Spirit, he speaketh mysteries. In that scripture, Paul said that a person who is praying in tongues is speaking not to others, but directly to God. So praying in the Spirit is the purest form of prayer because my mind doesn't get in the way. My emotions doesn't get in the way. I don't have to understand what the Spirit is speaking because God understands it. And that, that's all that is going to matter in that instance. To pray in the spirit is to lose touch with our wishes and our will. So if, if praying in tongues is speaking directly to God and I don't understand what I'm saying, then I'm not thinking about my wishes and my will. I'm not letting my words take it over. To pray in the spirit is to be immersed in God's will and God's power. Think about that time that Moses was in the middle of God's presence for 40 days and nights. Do You found one of my errors. Yes, you did. <laughs> to pray in an unknown heavenly language and to pray with fervency and expectancy. So how do we do this? Paul said we pursue it and we desire it. I never thought about it. I'll be, I mean, I'm just being honest and transparent with y'all because I am certainly not any kind of expert or example of this. I, I just want to be a vessel in studying this particular book. But I've never had a thought, Oh, Lord, let me pray in the Spirit. I mean, I'm serious. I just kind of thought that if I prayed... And it was God's will, then I would just start praying in the spirit because that's just what would happen. Because I, you know, I finally got out of the way. So to pursue it and to desire it and to say, Oh Lord, let me know beyond the shadow of a doubt that my prayers are pure because you are praying for me. That's a new that's a new goal for me. That's, that's something that I am going to start being very on purpose <laughs> about and, and not just saying, oh, thank you, Lord, for blessing me in this moment and happening to come by and, and let me pray. And no, I, I'm going to start making it a dedicated goal that if this is my prayer time, I want to be sure that it is used the right way and that, praying in the spirit is the way I oil the shield of faith. So it's not that I will forget about the needs and forget about the things that I am reminding God that I would like for him to do. But I want to get to the point where praying in the spirit elevates that work of faith, like Brother Gurley says, and that I don't have to Wonder if my prayers hit the ceiling, as Pastor said the other day from the pulpit. Is it, do your prayers just stop at the, the top of the building? No, no. If, if I pray in the Spirit, then I know they're elevated. I know that they reach heaven. The anointing oil of the Holy Ghost flows and keeps us protected, ready for any battle and at our prime. So the armor of God is not complete without the purest prayer of praying in the Spirit. Any other thoughts or, or comments about instances of praying in the Spirit, maybe? Sir? Or... Um, there's one in, the, in Isaiah 61 and 1, and another in 1 John 2 and 20. Are those the ones that we're talking about? And then... That's where we were talking about the anointing oil. But there may be others that we can also look up and reference. These were just the particular ones from that that part of the book. Yes, sir. I do remember one particular time that um, God woke me up in the middle of the night. And there... There was, there had been a dream and something horrible had happened in the dream. And I awoke with such fear that I didn't know what to do except to start praying. And I did start praying in the spirit and didn't even realize that's what was happening. And in the process of praying in the spirit, I went to the doorpost of our home And I started doing this with my hand. And I realized later that I was pleading the blood, that I was applying the blood to the doorposts of our home. The dream that I had had was about my little girl being molested. I woke from that dream. And she was maybe in kindergarten or first grade at the time. And I remember that fear being so real. And I didn't know what else to do but just to start calling on God. And I do believe it that by praying in tongues, he was elevating my faith at that moment. And later, in that same school system, a little girl the same
2: age as my daughter was molested by an adult at school. But it was not my daughter's school. And I'm not saying that my praying in tongues sent that harm to another child. But I do believe that God showed me in that moment that by applying the blood to our doorposts, God had laid a protection over my baby girl. And I didn't know what I was praying. I just knew that in the Holy Ghost, in my mind, the blood was being painted over our doorposts. And I was saying, pass over us, God. Pass over us. Pass over us. And that's the kind of experience that I want to ask God for that I want to seek out. I don't want to wake up from dreams like that. Don't get me wrong. That's not something I want to repeat. But if that's the kind of thing that leads to me seeking and desiring and pursuing that oil of the Holy Ghost speaking through me
0: and elevating my faith, then you know I, I know for a fact that that was one time that God will never let me forget that he made that possible for me. So our last devotion, quick summary of it, is the re-centered life and for prayer to continue the way that it should in, in a way that is going to awaken the revival that our world needs. We need to center around him. Anybody ever ask God, where are you, God? Anybody
2: ever feel that way? Every day?
0: How often... Do we miss God only to discover God has been missing us? So perhaps we should ask ourselves in those times when we think we can't find God, God, where am I? God, where am I?
2: Am I where you want me to be? Am I where you are? (laughs) Because you're everywhere,
0: so where have I gone? (laughs) Where have I gone? You haven't left me. We put God in the center of our lives when we look to him, listen to him, and follow him. We put God in the center of our lives when we look to him, listen to him, and follow him. And this is, in a sense, wrapping up with a bow some of the ways that we've journeyed through our study of the book on prayer. In session one, we talked about how God promised to be our guide, but he didn't promise to be our map. Because if I have a map, I feel like I should be able to figure that out and know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Where am I supposed to turn Where am I supposed to recognize the landmark or or whatever? And if I instead am following somebody, or if someone is riding with me saying, okay, turn up here. No, no, not that light, but the next one. Then they are guiding me. They're not leaving it to me to do on my own. They are with me, showing me. Either because they're in front and I'm keeping my eye on them, or because they're next to me and I'm listening to them. So I want God to be in the car with me. I uh, relax a whole lot if I am driving somewhere and I can follow somebody. And I just like, just, as long as I keep their taillight in view, I don't really worry about am I going to get lost? But if I have handwritten directions or a map, I second-guess them, and I worry about them. God wants to be our guide. He wants to be the car in the lead or the expert co-pilot in the car. If he rides with you, you'll not have to wonder which lane on the prayer highway you need to take. You won't be asking God, where are you? If you are centered on him, you'll know exactly where he is. And let's just be mindful of the, the point of all of these lessons coming together from this book is awakening us, getting us ready to be the instruments we need to be for revival in the last days. And it's got to start with that repentance, with that intercession, with that renewal, with that expansion that we talked about last week. Because that's going to be the last great awakening. And we will get to be a part of it. And prayer is going to be the key to it. Period. Awaken the lost world by awakening us first, Lord. Anybody have any closing thoughts or questions?